0: Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums play an important role in our lives. Nearly every good-sized city has at least one museum. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums are not only important places to display artifacts and teach us, they also contribute to the economic development of the areas where they're located. Now, here is your host, Carol Bossert.
1: Good morning, I'm very excited today to have a friend and colleague, David Carr, uh, on the show today. Welcome, David.
2: Thank you very much, Carol. I'm honored to be here.
1: You know, David, uh, as I was writing the promo for this week's show, I just couldn't help myself start it by uh, uh, with a quote from John Cotton Dana. It's I, it, yeah, and and of course John Cotton Dana was uh, a, a museum pioneer, or a, almost a museum maverick, uh, at his, of his time in the early 1900s. But of course, it's also sort of an inside joke, uh, David, between the two of us, since that's where we met. We met that's in right. in Newark, New Jersey. I was uh, director of the science department there, and you were working at the library, weren't you?
2: Uh, well, I was working um, in various places I, at that time. I was a professor at Rutgers, I think, uh, teaching in the library school there. Uh, but um, uh, the Newark Museum had always been part of my life. That's the first museum I ever joined, and I still have memories of the of the nature center there and the children's museum, and uh, many of the many of the formative. Uh, ideas that I, I have later revisited, really did come from uh, the Newark Museum. And it still is, for me, uh, a really critical example of what a museum can be. And, of course, John Cotton Dana, because he started as a librarian. Uh, yes. And then, and then uh, as a formidable librarian, first in Denver and then in Newark and then turned to museums, created museums in the image of the library. He's always been very much uh, a part of my uh, sense of uh, having been mentored by uh, a great man
1: well i I think you bring up an important point and it gets me to the the first question i i wanted wanted to ask you uh today mm-hmm. david and that is uh because you have been uh, a professor you've been a librarian you're you're an educator uh and but not necessarily a museum professional uh per se what has uh what other than the the Newark Museum, what has really uh, moved you to focus so much of your your career in the last uh, few years on uh, both the promise of museums and uh, museums as as, uh, cultural institutions?
2: Well, uh, when I... When I started uh, my professional work as a teacher in public schools and then left it to become a librarian and then left uh, the practice of librarianship to become uh, a professor first of adult education and then of library and information studies, I never really stopped being any one of those things in order to become the next. I carried along all of those uh, perspectives uh, uh, to the the next uh, uh, work that I did. Uh, Early on, uh, when I was doing uh, my dissertation work, I looked at libraries as places where adults can learn uh, outside of schools. I realized that uh, adults, once they graduate from high school or college, really are on their own as far as finding uh, good information, finding knowledge, making sense out of the world. And so I started to think about uh, the kinds of values that allow adults to be the Uh, useful uh, 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 learners in very complex situations. Libraries worked out very well. Later on, uh, when I became a professor of adult education, I thought, well, that's not the only institution that holds information and objects for people. Um, so uh, while i 've been a librarian and a professor i 've also been an observer in cultural institutions, museums, libraries, parks, historic sites um, uh, for uh, aquariums uh, uh, for for many years uh, about thirty by now and i 've been looking at what people do when they 're in collections, how they respond to them, and what the collections do, and how they Museum or uh, uh, library professionals who manage them, how they present collections to uh, users, how they communicate. And I've often thought about the possibilities that any given museum or library. Is making offerings and invitations to users. So, you know,
1: David. I excuse me, I, no. but I, I sort of want to stop you there uh, because you've used this word uh, a couple of times uh, when you talk about the people who visit museums and are mm-hmm. engaged with collections. You use the word user. Now, um, as a museum professional myself, I you know I always struggle with what I call uh, call these people, but usually I call them visitors. So mm-hmm. what's What in your mind what's the difference and why do you use the word user
2: well user is a word that I adapted from library work and from library research people use libraries um, in order to get something done or in order to explore something they don't understand uh, or they want to solve a problem uh, that's important in their lives and they find useful resources and they can also find helpers in the form of reference librarians for example in the library It occurs to me uh, that uh, people use museums in the same ways, although we may not be quite as conscious or aware of the things that impel us uh, to go to a museum. Um, we need to explore something. We go to them for uh, the kinds of thoughts that we are able to have there. I mean, museums are extraordinary places. When we step into them, we really step off the street and into a setting that runs by our own interests, by our own volition, and by the ideas that move us most passionately. So it's often exhilarating thinking that we're able to do there. And it's different from the thinking that we uh, do elsewhere. Sometimes, uh, we go to museums for solace. We go to museums to understand such things as faith. We go to museums to understand, uh, the commonalities that weave us all together as people. And what we see there confirms our values and the things that we care most for in our lives. So we use a museum to be a little more certain about ourselves and the things that we think about. It's, uh, it's a, it's a dimension of the museum that I have been emphasizing whenever I speak to museum professionals for years now.
1: So museums are a, a, a touchstone for uh, each of us individually.
2: I think that a museum user, someone who uh, is accustomed to going uh, to see art or to experience history or to see, um, uh, the, uh, even to go to a living collection like a zoo or botanical garden, a person who's going there is is not going there by accident they go there because they have chosen to be there they've committed a certain amount of time and perhaps money to be there it's uh it's an extension of themselves and when they're in that botanical garden they are um uh looking at a a reflection of their own values and the things that they find uh, uh maybe beautiful maybe inspiring maybe educational uh but certainly the part of an identity that is their very own.
1: You know, what strikes me David is is as as you're talking, you're really describing a very complex and very Active uh, form of an engagement that I that uh, of course is taking place in the mind. Yes. Uh, if you know, if if uh, we if you and I were were and at the Newark Museum this morning, for instance, and we were just watching the people uh, uh, walk around a gallery, it might look very tame. Uh, to our eyes people would be walking perhaps sitting uh, perhaps talking uh, uh, sharing something with each other maybe pointing but you know it, it from the outside it looks very passive but what you're talking about is very engaging when you talk about exhilarating things Thinking, uh, yes. you know, that's a word that that normally we would reserve for people who are schlussing down a, a ski slope or, or going down the Potomac in a kayak. Um.
2: Well, wow, I like those metaphors. The um, uh, the. That- that's not a bad. Those are not bad metaphors to think of the kinds of excitement and exhilaration that people can feel. Uh, I recently was at uh, in Brooklyn, and I went to the Brooklyn Museum, where I saw an exhibit of uh, the work of um, El Anatsui, um, an African uh, a man who m- makes extraordinary uh, fabrics out of discarded pieces of aluminum foil and wire. Uh, They're absolutely extraordinary. And in this exhibition, they were also monumental. So in the presence of these things that went from floor to ceiling, multiple examples, different patterns, uh, just astonishing huge blankets of color uh, uh, and metal, uh, one sees them and thinks about the genius that it takes to create them, about the... Uh, challenge of uh, working with the objects themselves, about the uh, uh, lasting quality of the uh, of these things and how they are movable, but they're also permanent and they'll be with us as both as artifacts, but also as memories. Just the other day, my wife and I went to the High Museum here in Atlanta. And we saw uh, a work of art that has been done, that had been done you know, three hundred fifty years ago by uh, Vermeer, uh, called the, the Girl with a Pearl Earring, oh, yes. and uh, and it was uh, mobbed. It was full of people uh, each time we went there, and so. I was looking at this remarkable, brilliant object that uh, stood out from all the other companion pieces that had come from Holland with it, uh, the Netherlands with it. And, and as I looked at it, what I thought of was just looking around at the other faces of people around me. And I said, yes, the human face continues and here it has been captured over, over centuries with uh, a brilliance that is virtually unmatchable. Uh, in contemporary life. So what we're doing is looking at something that's go- that's beyond words, it's often beyond our own ability to explain what's happening, but it also has a very definite uh, effect on us because it creates a memory, it creates an experience, what John Dewey thought of as an experience that lasts with us. What museums can do is make those experiences even more memorable, stronger, more uh, continuous with our own lives and experience and 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 uh, habits and practices
1: you know talking uh, about museums um, making experiences uh, you also mentioned this this idea that that we can be changed in ways that we can't necessarily verbalize uh, this sense of knowing it you know, I, I I always struggle, even after all these years of being in the field, of you know how 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 we define and and. Uh, um, not necessarily measure, but but really just how we define that, that term, you know we, we talk in museums about learning, we talk about learners in the museum but mm-hmm. but the more you talk, and I you know and you and I have shared this before, uh, I, I'm not feeling that learning really uh, uh, really embodies what you 're talking about.
2: Well, I used to use that word a great deal, and it's still a functional word and a useful word for us. We can refer to learners, uh, uh, and we all know what we're talking about. There was a time when I'd make the distinction between students and learners, but and I'd talk about because I was very much involved in a concept called the Adult Independent Learner. What I would talk about when I talked about a learner is a person who volitionally decided that he or she needed to master some concept or idea or skill. And so they set out to do uh, adult independent learning. Actually, I don't think, here's where I go out on a limb, uh, I don't think that uh, museums are about learning in the same way that schools seem to be in the 21st century at least. Uh, I have to say that uh, in the grasp of politicians, um, um, the word learning has lost a lot of value. Uh, so I try not to talk about learners. I've always said that museums are not schools. And um, and for a long time, I was unsure. Uh, I, you know, I struggled myself. How do I make that clear to people that museums are not uh, schools? And then I realized that uh, as long as schools talk about what they do as learning, Museums, as very different places from schools, need to talk about something else. So now what I say to museum professionals is that museums are not about learning anything uh, so much as they are about thinking anything, and there's a significant difference there. Uh, Sometimes it it may be experiencing uh, something that's extraordinary. Sometimes it may be feeling things like ambiguity or awe or understanding complexity or feeling confusion, which is not a bad thing to feel because we need to make decisions and we need at times to break through our confusion to something that has value for us. This is why I say that what happens in museums can be quite um, extensive into the rest of our lives if we don't think about what we have experienced in the museum when we're there on a Sunday, uh, on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, then, well, what's happened in the museum on Sunday? It ought to be something that we carry away with us, that we can talk about with other people. And we need to experience what I refer to as generative tensions in museums, seeing something that might be inexplicable, or seeing a work of art, say, by, well, by El Anatsui, or by Sai Twombly, another one of my great favorites. They make something happen in our minds, so we ought to keep working on them after we go to the museum, because something's still happening there. We ought to leave a museum wondering about something, and one of the things that we carry with us is something that we identify that we do not fully understand, and that keeps us moving forward. It also keeps us interesting to other human beings.
1: I like that very much. Uh, I, I think perhaps we need to be telling uh, uh, young adults that uh, they could be be more interesting to others if they uh, if they 'll go go to the museum you know david we 're going to take a, a, a break here you 've said Thanks. so many really uh, useful things when we come back. I want to uh, talk a, a little bit more about uh, this idea of what we experience in the museum, but in the meantime you 're listening to the museum life with Carol Bossard and my my guest today David Carr and of course if you want to keep the conversation going, uh, you can visit me at Carolbossertservices.com. You can also visit David at conversations at gmail.com. We'll no, be that. back in a few okay. Talk,
3: talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll free right now at 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
2: In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control, and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday
0: at
1: 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com.
3: Many people are seeking to make a difference in the world, but few actually have the tools to do so. Every week, host Mary Beth Lodge and her guests will have you thinking forward and will give you the tips to keep your life goals priorities and choices on track the result is an easier happier and more inspired life the name of the program is what matters tune in every wednesday at 9 a.m eastern time 6 a.m pacific time on the voice america variety channel what really matters is the positive changes that you'll bring to your life and the world just by listening talk 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 that's all we do is talk If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to one 472 5788 That's one 472 5788 Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to museum life.
1: Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and I'm here today with my guest, David Carr. David uh, is a librarian, a professor, an educator, and a museum observer. And we've been talking uh, today about, uh, right before break, we were talking about uh, what museums uh what we experience in museums is more than learning; it's experiencing and thinking. Uh, and David, I, I wondered if you you just expand upon that a little bit more. What what really mo- what, what do you think really motivates us to get to go to museums?
2: Well, I've. I've... The first book I wrote was called The Promise of Cultural Institutions, and when I thought about that promise and tried to articulate it through my own experience and through the experiences I observed, I realized that its promise is, uh, the the, uh, first I should say, I always thought it was remarkable that our culture set aside these places. A community sets aside uh, its uh, its library for the aspirations and the hopes and the values and the knowledge of its people. Uh, communities also create museums uh, and support uh, collections that capture the history of a community, that capture uh, the stories of a community. And I think we go to museums in order to participate uh, in those values. We go to the library because we have aspirations of learning something, of feeling uh, that we have uh, uh, some control over this extraordinary information universe that we're now confronted by. Uh, We go to a museum to gain some access to and sense of the continuities uh, of which we all are a a part. Uh, One of the most important museum exhibits I ever saw was in Philadelphia, uh, and it was a museum exhibit that had been created by uh, the university by the Wisconsin State Historical Society. It was called uh, uh Five Generations here, the Krugers of Emmett and it comprised objects that one family had collected over five generations. There was a lot of photography in the exhibit because one of the sons of this family was a photographer, so you could see toys and furniture. Uh, uh, constantly in different generations, in the homes of different generations of people. And as I looked at that, and as I saw other parts of that exhibit, which included such things as family stories and recipes and um, uh, 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 pieces about uh, the renegade black sheep of the family, I thought as I watched, uh, as I saw these things, well, this is my story as well. There are parts of me that are here. Some parts of the story are not mine, but I certainly can understand them and I can look at them as though they were telling me about me. I think, in a way, that's something that we all, all sense. When we enter a collection that has depth and brilliance associated with it, a great collection reminds us that we are more than uh, the professional person we are, more than the person who goes to work each day, more than the parent who manages a household, more than uh, the commuter or uh, the uh, late night hobbyist who's struggling to uh, finish something that he really cares a great deal about the museum. Go ahead.
1: Well, I was gonna say, David, that you know, that sparks in me an idea that I that I hadn't really considered before, and that is that when we go to museums, we not only want to find ourselves in the story, but we want to be reminded that we are connected to others' stories. We we're searching for community. And I'm and I'm wondering if that need to search for community is not even more magnified in these days where so many people live in situations where they don't even they don't know their neighbors we live in in large transient communities maybe museums are are playing an even greater role than than we've really acknowledged
2: i I agree completely they certainly have the capacity to play that greater role um the, the the book that I published in 2011 is called Open Conversations, and what it tries to uh, explore is the idea that cultural institutions are settings that naturally are provocative and evocative. They are places where questions naturally occur, and they are also places where people can talk to each other who might not otherwise uh, talk to each other, and who in Today's political climate are perhaps impeded from talking to each other because of the of the greater insularity that we experience now. One of the effects of our technology, of course, has been that it has uh, encapsulated us. It has meant that we no longer need to talk to someone to find out something, and it's uh, it also means that we can live pretty usefully and. Uh, and uh, perpetually in um, a sort of insular space. But we have to come out to go to a museum. We have to be present to go to a museum. And while we're there, we can be experiencing something that um, thoroughly uh, changes the way we uh, make assumptions about the lives that we lead and the lives that others lead.
1: So, in a a way, museums really are a good balance for uh, the kinds of of learning or kinds of experiences uh, that, as adults that that we have today, which is going to the internet and looking it up on Wikipedia.
2: Absolutely. I would go farther than that, even, Carol. I'd say that uh, museums and libraries are essential parts of our democracy, that uh, they are the ways we Uh, guarantee, uh, ourselves of, uh, first of all, keeping things, uh, keeping things safe, but they are ways that we have of keeping ourselves safe also. Uh, there are places that we can go to make sure that we have a sense of where we've come from, a sense of what we have accomplished as people. And here's where I think we, need to uh, expand what we do, it also could be a place where people consider the places that we're going and the kinds of things that uh, that we are in the process of becoming. The, The thesis of that book, I mentioned, Open Conversations, is that what we need is an opportunity to become something together rather than individually. And my notion is that we have these remarkable forums, libraries, museums, where with the right Situations, uh, carefully created and, and usefully produced. And, uh, we, we can actually invite each other to talk to each other and not, uh, to, uh, make any assumptions about what we will say and who we are and what we want to have happen. Everyone's aspirations are different, but everyone's aspirations are something of the same. So if we begin to express those, I think we are less insular and less separate from each other and that's a problem we have I believe.
1: Yes, well certainly uh you know as uh, as you and I were talking about um uh during the break this week in Washington DC has uh been a challenge for us all with the uh government shutdown and so many government employees uh not n- not sort of knowing what their future is holding, and then yesterday, uh, hearing uh, you know the surreal news that there were uh, bullets flying at the Capitol, which turned out to not be uh, quite true. But uh, I, I was sitting in a, a meeting um, yesterday afternoon when we all did what is becoming just way too common in in uh, in our country. We all dived for our cell phones to find out exactly what was going on, and uh, you know, and then sort of driving home. Uh, in, in this sort of surreal sense of, uh, of trepidation, of, of not knowing how to make sense of, of my world. Uh, and I, I think that mm-hmm. uh, it would have been nice if I could have gone to a museum yesterday, uh, any old museum actually, and just sort of sat and uh, helped, helped myself process this, this crazy world we're living in
2: absolutely That's, uh, solace is certainly one of the one of the things that museums offer us. They have a certain quality of permanence and um, and agelessness um, uh, but they and and in um, uh, a time when uh, safety and trust are not given but something that we 're always uh, somewhat wary and cautious about. Um, these are places that have a kind of uh, secular, uh, the secular quality of our um, uh, place of calm, our place for reflection and meditation, or our place of, of um, understanding how, um, though we may feel frightened as individuals, there's a collectivity, there's a larger sense of who we are as people and the things that we know. And if we can begin to draw from that and participate from that, sip from that uh, oasis or that well, then we go a long way, I think, to restoring ourselves. The idea of that well, by the way, is another useful metaphor. Our institutions just keep gathering and gathering and gathering um, the evidence that we are human beings. The evidence that we are extraordinary in the, what we know and what we can think uh, and that's also something that we participate in when we go there and we see the, how far we've come if you go to the henry ford museum for example in dearborn that's a story that the museum tells a story that is continuing that lives on people who who visit that museum who use that museum Really are using it in order to understand an American story and that's uh, uh that's a sense of a, a source of identity as well as a source of uh, of uh, possibility
1: you know David one of the others uh topics that you bring up uh uh, particularly in uh, your book, The Promise of Cultural Institutions, is this idea that we, we go to museums uh, and libraries because we have unfinished business. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about that? I, I find that concept fascinating.
2: Well, I, I, I love it myself. It's uh, you know, <clears throat> As we grow up, uh, we are subject to so many influences, we learn in our families, we experience things through our our parents, through our extended relatives or those people who serve us as models and mentors and help to shape us. We often have some sort of faith training in our early years. We gradually evolve into social beings outside our homes and, and so on. And we go to school. Uh, we uh, have to And as we go to school, we learn things uh, and experience things. And there are cumulative things, it occurs to me, that happen. We have uh, certain markers that we observe and obey, but after a while we also question, we wonder what's happening. Uh, We wonder if everything we've heard uh, covers it all. We find that there may be inconsistencies between our upbringing and someone else's, or we may look at our families and After thinking them to be entirely stable, they have fissures in them or they begin to fall apart or we lose someone we care about. One of the things that happens is that we're always asking questions of ourselves. They don't go away think of some of the ethical questions that just keep taking new forms as we evolve uh, as individuals. Well, I think these are unfinished issues, and uh, they may be really practical. There may be a time in school, for example, when we have studied, um, well, let's say geology, And when we go to a museum like the Museum of Natural History in New York or the Great One in Washington, one of the things that we may want to pursue is that whole notion of geology and the whole notion of where, how the world has evolved and how the world has come forward. So we carry that with us. Now, we can read as many books as we want about geology. We can read as many books as we want about ornithology or about art history or any other field that we may have questions uh, about. But no matter how much we read or research, our love of that question never quite goes away. So when we go back to the museum, we'll look again. When we go to the art museum, we look again. When we go to a new city and find that there are new museums there, when we go into those museums, we look again, and we keep those ideas in mind. Now, I used to think uh, about the problem of an individual who stood at the threshold of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. And as uh, he or she walks into that museum, the great big reception hall, they can assume that there are just thousands and thousands of masterpieces on display what do you look at first how do you look at it where do you go first what you need to do is that you follow the unfinished questions the unfinished issues the unfinished parts of your life that have always interested you and always welcome you back so um so that's where that idea came from um, and I think that it's even more complex uh, than we can ever fully understand. There are all sorts of invisible things, invisible strands that move us forward, and each one of them leaves question with us.
1: So questioning is, uh, if once we have the answer to the question, then... Mm. It it's an end, isn't it? Uh, it's uh, it's almost when we've we've achieved uh, a, a key goal. Uh, often there's sadness uh, in our lives until we we come up with the with the new purpose or the new question.
2: Well, if if it's, if it's a good question, one of its characteristics is that it's complex, and uh, and the complexity is made up of different facets. So it's unlikely that we can unravel everything associated with the question as we understand it.
1: And we're going to come back with some more questions in just a minute. This is uh, The Museum Life. Uh, I'm Carol Bossert. I want to remind you, if you want to keep the conversation going, uh, you can reach me at uh, carolbossertservices.com, and you can reach David and his dog at carr.conversations at gmail.com. We'll be back in a minute.
3: There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, Jr., President and CEO of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern, on Voice America Variety. News, News. opinion. your voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call in to 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to radioshow at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life.
1: Hi, welcome back. I'm Carol Bossard, and I'm here with David Carr, librarian, educator, and museum observer. And we've been talking uh, about the importance of museums as a place to continue our unfinished business, our unfinished issues of uh, lifelong questions and quests. But before I go on, I would be remiss if I did not encourage all of my listeners to pick up and read David's books. Uh, I have them here. Uh, I have signed autographed copies that I cherish. In fact, my copy of The Promise of Cultural Institutions that was uh, published in 2003 is getting a little dog-eared, David, because I've, <laughs> I've, I've gone through it so much. But but uh, and, and David's al- already mentioned uh, another book of his, Open Communications, Public Learning in Libraries and Museums, and another one of my favorites, A Place is Not a play, a place, uh, a place, not a place, and uh, and and because these cultural institutions that we do cherish say so much about our, our ourselves as 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 a society that we put so much time and energy in building them, maintaining them, continuing to expand them, and more importantly. To go to them, to go to them uh, as 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 learners, as searchers, as as uh, as our wanting self. So, in David, in our last uh, fifteen minutes, uh, I what I'd like to do is share with our our readers, and then help uh, let you expand a little bit on my absolute favorite chapter that you've ever written in any of your books I well, I, I will say now I am as you know I'm a writer by, by profession and I sometimes like to say I get paid by the word but the reason I particularly love 10 lessons in one rule is it's really short and I can remember it
2: and really short is it's so that our listeners know, it's. I think it's two pages long, the entire chapter.
1: It is. It is. So, so I'm. I'm going. This will. This is sort of like a quiz show, David. We're going to go okay. through all. Um, maybe not. I don't know that we're going to have room for all ten. We will get to the rule because everyone okay. needs that. Needs that. But what a. Um, but I'm just going to uh, share a couple of these that always strike a chord with me, no matter how many times I've read this. And the first one is Lesson 1, Learners Learn from Learners.
2: Yes, um, yes. Uh, that, uh, By the way, that sentence is not original with me. Uh, it was one that I heard first from uh, the first superintendent of sco- schools that I ever worked for in Princeton, New Jersey, a man called Phil McPherson. Uh, and uh, his point and my point when, you know, when I adopt his words is uh, that uh, unless unless a teacher or someone who is in a role of creating situations for others where they can find things that they need, unless the person who does that creating is also learning and also engaged in finding out new things and is, in fact, moved to uh, explore, uh, then the person who is the user in the circumstance of the museums doesn't have a person to be inspired by. When we go to a museum, we're not simply encountering uh, an object, a painting, let's say, uh, or a model, what we're really encountering is something that uh, requires uh, invigoration, it requires illumination, it requires uh, a person who's, uh, uh, perhaps not literally, but in some way, standing next to it saying, when I look at this, I feel wonderful. Or when I look at this, I am amazed by what has happened here, or by what has been done. Or this process is one that everyone needs to understand. In other words, we need someone who is sort of impassioned to communicate. There's another way in which this is important, and later on I encountered this in the work of a Russian psychologist named Vygotsky, whom most of our listeners may know. Vygotsky talks about the need for us to have someone who is close to us, someone who is proximate to us, who can whisper in our ear, in a sense, saying, you know this, you can think about this, what if you look at it from this way? Uh, that person whose experience and advice helps to lead us uh, toward a trust. And that's what uh, why it's important uh, to talk about how we learn and what we've discovered as individuals because we become models for other people. And we also have to talk about the things that we don't fully understand yet, uh, the, the puzzles that we have when we look at someone's work or when we look at a, a problem that just seems so fascinating but uh, at the moment is uh, uh, insoluble.
1: And that actually leads me to another, uh, another one of your, your lessons, Lesson 6, which is, A Great Learner is a Human Artifact, the Fabric of Generous Experiences and Convivial Relationships.
2: Yeah. Uh, when, we, when we look back, and, and this is maybe something that, uh, when I wrote this, uh, I did not understand how true it was, as I understand now, um, when we look back at our lives, one of the things that we recognize, among others, is the gifts they've given to us, uh, selflessly and generously. Uh, and that that the, the, the cultural institution that is the best is the generous cultural institution, the one that is most encouraging and that is the most willing to share what it has collected and to share what it means as widely as possible. That kind of generosity, when it is given to us by an individual or by an institution, gives us confidence in our own self-worth, uh, both when we practice generosity, giving to others, and when we receive it. So, um, so yes, I think that and, and later on in uh, the book, Open Conversations, um, uh, there's a chapter where I talk about um, the life strands, the, the multiple strands that we have in our lives, like our families, our biology, our, the, our participation in an economy, uh, our um, uh, educations, both formal and informal, the ethics that we experience and the faith experiences we have. All of these strands weave together To create the fabric that is who we are and if something happens a challenge happens on one strand then um, it reverberates on another strand Uh, so um, it's a dynamic constant flow that fabric is always being woven and always being rewoven as we live one life and
1: that goes to lesson nine a learner's process is an art Mm -hmm. It's tensions derive from and generate energy and change.
2: Yeah. Frank Smith, who's a writer about education, uh, whom I admire, uh, says that uh, the mind is more like an artist than a machine. And when I read that sentence, I had to rethink everything that I had done as a person in a classroom. If in fact the mind is an artist or it's an inventor or it's an innovator rather than something that just follows along, if that's so, then what are the circumstances or situations that we need to create where people can become the people they were intended to be and gather some control over the ways in which they evolve Uh, I had to stop thinking about my classroom as a place where my questions were the most important questions. And I had to start thinking about my classroom as the place where my students' questions were the most important questions. i like to see that apply. That's certainly a lesson that librarians know. We need to listen to the question of the person who asks for our assistance. In museums, we also need to understand that Museum users should also be our teachers. When we find them in the presence of an object that is great and astonishing, rather than tell them what they should think, we need to listen to what they think because they think and they know and they experience something and they bring their lives to it. That's where we need to uh, treat our institutions more like uh, studios or laboratories where there's a kind of openness or a conversation that goes on and where people can be candid with each other about what they see and feel.
1: Yes and 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 that I say th- I this next one you know, if we're, we're talking about things mm-hmm. that changed our way of doing things, this next one that you wrote has really made me look at the way I approach exhibits uh, and exhibit development, which, of course, as an interpreter and as an exhibit developer, I always like to tie up the loose ends and make mm-hmm. sure that everything is crystal clear and very clean and the messages are unambiguous ambiguous, but here you say, lesson ten, there are some enemies of learning, including arrogance, reduction, discontinuity, entertainment, fear, and didacticism. And the first two, arrogance and reduction, are the worst. And I've got to say, David, that I, you know, I come back to this with every project I do and say, you know, maybe it's okay that we leave a little mystery and maybe it's okay if we use a few words or a few concepts that not everyone is going to understand because this might fuel their ability or their desire to find out more about
2: it. Absolutely, yes. You know, we, we because... One of, the, one of the problems of being a museum is that we have authority, and, and the museum has a kind of um, uh, a sense of expertise associated with it, which is entirely appropriate. What it also has not developed, however, and uh, in in, as it develops its expertise, is the capacity to give and the capacity to be open about its rationale. So much about a museum has not been shared with its users, and often when we, when a museum interprets and creates an exhibition, it is uh, telling rather than inviting uh, the user. It's uh, for for uh, uh, better or or worse, uh, being authoritative or authoritarian, if you will. Uh, when in fact it could be far more collaborative. Uh, it, so in a sense, uh, 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 by the way, let me be clear, I admire my museum colleagues and I always admire uh, people who who do such great work, but everybody and that's me and I should do it right now I think, everybody has to ask himself about uh, the presence of arrogance in the way he expresses his opinions or the way he or she presents something Uh, and reduction is making things uh, so simple that we have moved all the complexity, all the intrigue and all the mystery out of it and know, museum exhibitions all ought to have little bibliographies attached. They don't often do that, but if you're curious, read this. What yes. Be for people to say.
1: Yes, and so um, as as we come to a close, I want to make uh, do what I promised, which is here's the one rule, and I think if if we just remember this, we will all be better museum makers and museum goers, and that is rescue the user. Every learner needs an advocate, needs to hear and trust a nearby voice. And David, I can't think of anyone who has been a better advocate for museums uh, and mu- museum makers than, than you. Uh, yeah. I truly uh, have enjoyed our friendship over the years. You're an inspiration to me as I continue my, my practice as a, as a museum maker. And uh, for all of our listeners, I do hope that you will take the time, if you haven't already, to read uh, David's thoughtful works, uh, The Promise of Cultural Institutions, A Place Not a Place. "Open." Okay. Open conversations, and I know David is working on on a new book as we speak, and so keep your eyes and ears open for that as well. David, it has been a true pleasure uh, to have you on the show today. Uh, again, if you want to continue the conversation with David, please do at conversations at gmail.com. Of course, you can always reach me at carolbossert services.com. Uh, and uh, this is the Museum Life we'll be back next week and uh, with another exciting guest thank you very much thank you, thank David. you Carol bye bye
0: thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. With the weekend coming up, why not plan a trip to your favorite museum or one you've never been to?